Hello, this is your host, Krista Collier from Life Struggles. Life Struggles is a podcast that I started two years ago during the COVID, kind of like a lot of people did. But the whole reason behind mine is that every single day, we all have some kind of life struggle. So life struggles can be about any kind of struggle. And my guests are people that have struggles just like you and I, how they've conquered them. And hopefully that'll help you not only gain some information, but not feel so alone. So today's guest is Dr. Rob Kelly, and he is a recovery alcoholic and also developed this amazing recovery program that I am super excited to share with you. So without further ado, let's welcome him. Hi, I have Dr. Rob Kelly with me today, and I'm so super, super excited. I have listened to so many interviews with this amazing man, and I can't wait to share him with you. So please help me in welcoming Dr. Rob Kelly. Thank you, Christine. Good to be here. You look amazing, by the way. Thank you very much. I'm so excited about this. (laughs) Yeah, it's going to be awesome. Okay, so um, what I need for my listeners, because a lot of them haven't listened to you before, don't know anything about you, is, is just some background of, of where, where everything started with you, and then we'll do part two on where you are today. Um, well, my name is Dr. Rob Kelly. They call me the Addiction Doctor, with T-H-E-B capitalized. I love that. <laughs> I love and, uh, it. I, I, I basically, I, today what I do is that I work with alcoholics and addicts, I work with trauma patients, I work with anything to do that's uh, undeveloped or redirected in, in the neuroscience in the brain and the behavioral science as well behind it. So um, I've been in the industry for about 25, 30 years uh, and everyone asks me the same question, why did you get into working with alcoholics and addicts? Right. And as Christy knows, but you don't, guys, and you probably won't tell by looking at me, but I'm a chronic alcoholic that lost absolutely everything. And when I say everything, I mean the children, the wife, the cars, the houses, the family, parents, sister, brother, friends, and ended up homeless. And I'm, I'm still an alcoholic. I'm a recovered alcoholic today, but going back in the day, what happened to me is I, I grew up in a musical family. So at the age of nine or 10, I was on stage playing bass guitar with my auntie and uncle. Very nervous child. So I remember taking, my uncle said to me, I was so nervous, here's a beer. I drank the beer down in one. And oh my goodness, my life changed right there and then. So what I know 11? now and not then is that's not natural. <laughs> so you were 11 at that first time? Nine. Nine, okay. Nine years old, yeah. And uh, I didn't know anything about alcoholism. And and this is one of my deals today is if you have alcoholism in the family, it's really important to educate your children coming up. So the question I get is, at what age should I educate you? And I would say at the age of six or seven, you need to start talking about, you know, an illness in the family 
and that the gene may be passed down to you and as they get older they'll understand. One of my biggest bugbears for me on my journey was my, first of all, my parents didn't know about alcoholism, I'm sure they didn't, but I got no such talk on, on that subject, even though my mum was borderline, my uncle on my dad's side was a chronic alcoholic, Nan was a chronic alcoholic, my um, my cousin was a chronic alcoholic, but nobody told me that. So when I started to struggle with alcoholism, uh, people were just saying, no, it's ridiculous, you're not an alcoholic. And I started to believe that. And the rest is history, I guess. So thank you very much for saying that. Um, I want to give you just a little bit of background on me so you know my knowledge of this. Okay. Um, and I think everybody out there needs to know that. So um, I am from a family of addiction, addiction, I'm going to say, and the gene of addiction. I have never, this is how I started out with my kids. Okay. First of all, I was so afraid. I watched, I watched my, so many of my family members being destroyed by alcohol and drug addictions that I was terrified of it. So mm-hmm. Thankfully, I never picked it up. This is, by the way, coffee. (laughs) Um, But regardless of that, I did not marry into a man who did any kind of alcohol or drugs. I never had any kind of alcohol in my house. And I started probably about of the age of seven talking to my kids about it. Um, it's, it's been okay, but some of them are like, you know, just because that was in your family doesn't mean we're going to do it. And I'm saying, why take the chance? So, so you do believe that you can have the gene also. You don't, you don't always have to just become an addict because of traumatic things. You can also have the gene there already that anything could make it flare up correct well uh not quite let me tell you something that's going to pick everybody out we have to remember who i am and the research that we've done over 30 years and we have a leading authority in alcoholism and addiction is that you can't drink yourself into becoming an alcoholic so it's a predisposition passed down from generation and my allergy is to ethanol in alcohol not the actual alcohol um so you can't you can't drink yourself to become an alcoholic until you can take enough drugs to become a drug addict because they have the addictive personality. My brain is different. Okay. I have the allergy when I drink. So my mental obsession as an alcoholic would say, it'll be okay, I'll get away with it, it wasn't that bad. So I take the first drink, then the mental obsession stops because it's done its job. Now the disease has an allergy because now you can't crave for anything that's not already in your body. It's the mental obsession that happens. So now I take it, now my body gets sick. There is a fine line for the untrained eye between an alcoholic and an abuser of alcohol. One can stop over a conservative pint, one cannot stop unless the neural pathways are changed within uh, that person's head and the behavioral and the hypothalamus and the basal ganglia and the prefrontal cortex all have some sort of shift to put him in recovery so he never drinks again. Okay. So alcohol and drug is not the same type of. Now they both show up similar because they both a drug that 
they can't stop using, but it's so different when it comes to actually looking at the way the brain uh, functions when the predisposition is uh, in effect. So it may skip a generation, it may skip two, very rarely it skip two, but it's there. And the only way you're going to know is by taking that first drink. Now, I know people that have the alcoholic tendencies, therefore the gene that's been passed on, that have never taken alcohol in their life. They're the guys running Google. They're the guys running Apple, for instance. Because alcohol, the alcoholic brain without alcohol is a genius brain, a genius brain. And we go on to do so many things once we get the alcohol away from our life and the compulsion has to be taken away uh, for us to succeed. So. Confusing, huh? A, a little bit just because of what I've seen as I've been growing up through all the years. Um, a little bit. So, um, I mean, I've argued with my siblings who, by the way, every one of my siblings are, are addicts. Um, and I have argued with them. Do I have those tendencies? I don't know because I've never even attempted it. Okay. So I'm sure it's there. I'm sure it's there, but I haven't attempted it. I'm too afraid of it, which doesn't make me all that bad. Um, but I thought an addictive gene itself could be anything. It could be sugar. It could be alcohol. It could be drugs. It could be OCD in there somewhere. That's what I was thinking that an addictive gene would be. Well, but now you're talking about addiction and not alcoholism. That's where they differ. <clears throat> so they are totally different genes. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. The, the addictive personality is what we have. So while we've got the addicted personality, what happens is we can bounce from one addiction to another. So if it's not drugs, it's sex, it's porn, it's cake, it's food, it's swimming, it's kid, whatever it is, everybody has an addiction. So there is a, a slight line between you know, alcoholism, we have to put that over there for a second, then we both show up similar, we can't stop drinking or using uh, the, the, the actions and the symptoms that show up similar. But the fine line is, that the alcoholic does not have a choice when he takes that first drink. So 95% of people that come to us with a heroin addict started in the doctor's office. So you can see how it became a habit and then it becomes an addiction. So over 90 days is usually the way uh, chemicals are reformed and neural pathways are reset, hence the 90-day treatment center. So we just have to bear in mind, but you will drop from one addiction to you and not necessarily an alcoholic. Is that, and I know, including myself, I do not have a problem with drugs. I can take pain meds from the doctor if I need it. I can take you know, something for my headache, very rarely do I do both, but I can and will not affect me. It's pure alcohol because I'm allergic to the ethanol. Okay. And so again, we look at alcohol as 1% to do with alcoholism. And drugs have 1% to do with drug addiction. I don't have a drinking problem. I have a thinking problem. So let me just put it this way to understand. So we've got the brain, okay? Back of the brain towards the base is what's called a hypothalamus. The hypothalamus is kind of a fight or flight part of the brain. It tells babies when they're born to cry when it wants food or to put its hand down its mouth. These are immediate reactions that we're born with. Okay, it's a it's a survival instinct. It tells the human being to drink water and to eat food to survive. 
It's just programmed in there. It's the way we're born. With the alcoholic, what happens is over a period of time, when we introduce alcohol, it gets worse and worse and worse. We cross over eventually from the heavy drinking into alcoholism. The fine line, nobody knows what it is, but we cross over. Once we cross over that line, the hypothalamus, which tells normal people to drink water, to eat food, tells the alcoholic to drink alcohol to survive. This is why the alcoholic can go days, weeks, even months without food or water, because part of the brain is telling him. Now, the other thing that alcoholics and drug addicts have is the basal ganglia, which is our motor skills and our thinking, our repetition, you know, certain things every day that we do, is slightly uh, marred. And what I mean by that is a slight dysfunction. So what will happen in that repetition, it might be an hour a day, a month, whatever it is, six months, but sooner or later, we're doing everything good, everything's going well, kids are great, car, and then we start sabotage because it's, it's built into the, to the basal ganglia. The idea is to your pathway change chemicals and the hypothalamus and the prefrontal cortex and the four good chemicals every day that we need, which we'll get into shortly, to repair that basal ganglia. And once it's repaired, there's no going back as long as you stick to a rigid routine every day and do a few simple things. It's been proven. I've worked with over 7,000 people, all have recovered from their addictions and uh, all go on some amazing stuff. Now, we are different to other people because we are a conscientious doctor where we check on four people at any one time. That's why our success rate is 95, 97% as opposed to three or 4% with other people that do this. I, I have a quick question there in there. So you you mentioned about how an, an alcoholic could drink for days and days and not uh, eat and drink. I'm a little confused on that. Isn't alcohol, doesn't that um, dehydrate you? It does, but even so, you don't, I, I never took water for three weeks when I was drinking. Uh, I was on the streets. I, I don't remember drinking water at all. You know, it, it must be damaging your body. Of course, yeah, that's where the cirrhosis comes in, that's where the liver damage comes in, the kidneys are damaged. Yeah, that's what alcoholism is, is you don't just get it one day and die, all your organs start to slow down, all your organs start to stop working. It's one right. of the most painful deaths in the world. But so yeah. one, of the, one of the things that I remember in, in, in another interview that I listened from you, um, which I wanted to ask you about, is so I do have somebody that I've been working with that has you know their kidneys now are bad their livers now are bad you know they've been 40 40 go, 40 years of drinking okay heavy drinking binging all that um but they do have some brain damage in there and according to the doctor that she sees that brain damage is from the alcohol let's get, let's get to the uh scarring of the livers to start with then we'll get to the brain once you cross over 40% of damage from alcohol abuse, 40% for zero, there's no coming back. It's called cirrhosis. You're on a ticking clock before you die. One point that's going to help. Secondly, with the brain, you can't kill brain cells with drinking. It's a great, the biggest myth I've ever heard. However, brain that's cells. That's why I wanted to ask you. Yeah. Brain, brain cells stop functioning and go into what we call a gray area. And that's what happens over a certain point. You want to cause disease, it will happen, which means there's no coming back. So the body and the organs have a percentage where you can take them to 
and you will come back from that. But once you step over that line, depending what the brain scans show on this person, will depend whether they can come back from that. You see, we can't talk about alcoholism or addiction without mentioning trauma. So before when I said 1% kind of deal with, you know, alcoholism, and the same for drug addiction, the 99% is the trauma that we suffered as a child that's having a huge effect on us going forward. And it's very hard to be untrained high to correlate the both. So because this happened to you, this is why you're doing this today. And what happened to you is nothing what you're doing today, but it's having the same psychological effect. Right. Because there is there is a, there is a connection there. Unless you go back and you clear that trauma up, then you're always self-sabotaging. And that looks different to all people. But you can eat yourself to death. You can you know, drink yourself, drug yourself to death, suicide, there's all things that will happen if you don't clear that trauma. So um, with your treatment, if somebody comes in, do you start out with like childhood trauma or do you just go right into? Wait, wait, oh, uh, one of the biggest questions I get asked is what's the gateway drug? Is it marijuana? Am I answering? Nope, it's not marijuana, it's trauma. Trauma is the gateway drug to everything that's wrong with us. So yeah, I mean, we, we do 95% of our work is telehealth. So we've been doing telehealth for almost nine years. It wasn't when COVID came out and suddenly everyone's a telehealth provider. It's like, we've been doing this for a long time. Actual fact, I went back to Southampton University for a second PhD in behavioral science so we could do this properly. So it's really important that we get down to a trauma from day two or three. Is so there a high... Is there a high percentage of people that don't even like they've blocked out that trauma so they can remember that to begin with? There is. There's a there's seventy five percent on average who can't remember. That's where our brain spotting comes. In. That's where EDMR comes in when we drag the thought pattern out of the subconscious brain through certain techniques that we're looking for. And once you loiter around that memory, everything we've done, felt, said, heard. Everything is stored in the subconscious brain. All of it can be brought to the prefrontal cortex if you know what you're doing. So yeah, people go, well, I don't remember the trauma, but there's loads of techniques to bring that trauma out because unfortunately, everybody has trauma. And unfortunately, alcoholics and addicts has it severely. So a normal person with, they say they have trauma, will be a divorce. It'll be a huge car crash, a plane crash, something devastating that's on the news or something. With the alcoholic and addict, trauma is something like this. How many times have I told you, you can't go to college like your brother, you're too stupid? Trauma. So we came up with the same. Any, with the alcoholics and addicts, anything less than nurturing is child abuse. And when you go back and you look at trauma like that, put it down, you idiot. Oh, that ruined my life. That, that one quick sentence. Uh, when we dissect the trauma and what it actually is and the effect it has on the brain, then we, do, then we decide and we look at and we uncover, discover, discover things all about the trauma, all about the trauma. Because alcohol is the end result. The actual fact, we did some tests. And what happened was we, we asked for two or three uh, just drug users, you know, not crazy, but asked if we could monitor them. And we, we tried asking them, can you keep clean for a few days? And, and they did. And then what happened is one by one over a period of days, got that thought pattern that they were going to take drugs no matter what. So 
the thought pattern came in their house. So they drove to the dealer and they got the drugs and they took the drugs in the car. The most intoxicating part of that journey was the drive to the drug dealer. Taking the drive, that was the most intoxicating. So again, we've got to look, is it the drug or is it the intoxicating feeling, the excitement of driving there knowing you've got it? So I don't know if you heard me saying this on our podcast, but this is how that started with me. I'm stood outside of a liquor store off license in uh, the UK, 5.30 in the morning. I have a t-shirt on, a pair of flimsy shorts and a pair of flip-flops. I'm sweating profusely. It's snowing. It's been- How old are you at this point? 22, 23, maybe. And the shopkeeper knows me. He knows that I depend on alcohol. He's not supposed to serve alcohol till 10, 5.30. He quietly opens the door. I sneak in and he locks the door behind me. On this occasion, and I don't know why, I was shaking, my head was banging, I'm going into the DTs. I need this alcohol in my body for everything to calm down. I'm literally shaking like this. And I give him the 10 pounds and he puts the bottle on the counter and this was my red Headaches went, sweat stopped, shaking stopped, mood changed instantly. Not taking the cap off the bottle, I was just holding it. I looked at the shopkeeper and I looked back at the bottle and I went, damn, it's not the alcohol. And that's what changed everything for me. That almost sounds like a panic disorder starting. <clears throat> a panic attack. Yes, but it was, it was definitely for me, the alcoholic was definitely. Right, right. Yeah, but once I touched it, my brain went, you're safe. Not even tasted the alcohol and everything calmed down. And that's what I knew. I don't know whether anybody else that's what started my studies when I got off the streets to go in deeper because what's alcoholism? Somebody who drinks too much alcohol? No. It could be further from the truth with that, with that statement. It's like I know people drink more than me, still, still. So if I understand you correctly, that, that was the point of when you said, okay, something, I got to do something about this. No, did you believe? No. No. Yeah, it was still more, more punishing. I still spent another eight months on the streets. Because I couldn't get off, I had nowhere to go. No one would speak to me. When I tried to call family, they put the phone down on me. I would see friends in the street and go to ask them for help and they'd turn away, you know, because I was vomiting, I was peeing myself, I, was, I couldn't stand up sometimes. I was just a mess and, and nobody would touch me. So I, I suffered on the streets for another eight months until one day that it all changed for me. Do you believe that? As much as, and I've read about your recovery system um, that you have going on there, and I love it, um, but do you believe that no matter what, that person has to be ready? 100% has to be ready. That's why we do an assessment. If you can't pass this assessment because you're not ready, we will not take you for any amount of money. I'm the guy that turned down Britney Spears for a million dollars 15 years ago in Dallas, Texas she wasn't ready two or three days later she shaved her head over the papers we're not going to do it you have to be ready to do this deal and then not only that but the let's say it's a guy for instance the wife or and, and anybody over the age of 18 in the house has to take part as well when we involve the family because it's a family disease when we involve the family the patient success rate goes up by 42 percent so, I mean, alcoholics are very good at manipulating. How, what, what is it that you can really tell when they say I'm ready, but they're really not? 
I speak the language, I know exactly what to say, and it differs from, you know, patient to patient or client to client. Um, it just, I just know. I will ask a leading question, you know, like, are you really, what? oh yeah, I definitely want to do it. Once we're going to check for Um, Okay, well, why not tonight be the last night we go and use and drink, and then tomorrow we'll start fresh. If he says, yeah, good idea, we call one back in and say, well, sorry, we can't work with him at this time. If he says, no, I don't want to do that, Dr. Robert, I want to start fresh tomorrow, then that's one indicator of about 10 that we use. So you wouldn't be good as good at this if you didn't experience that yourself. Bang, you just got it, Christy. Yes. So my 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 stuff I went through, which was horrific, absolutely horrific with the loss of everything and the children and the wife and the homelessness and the dying twice on the street and all that stuff, what I didn't know then, but I am now, is that's my greatest asset. Because only one alcoholic and one drug addict talking to another can connect like this. And I know what to look for. Whereas a normal therapist, God bless you, a normal therapist can't understand me when I say I will stab you in the face for a drink. They go, whoa, whoa, that's, that's crazy. You can't do that, calm down. No, no, I, I'm not angry. I'm just telling you what I would do. I stabbed my wife three times one night because she wouldn't let me finish drinking vodka. That's not normal. So right. you have to understand what the guy's going through with anything. It's like molestation, you know? all the other stuff that we all have different therapists. It's important that you have experience in that. You can't teach out of a textbook when it comes to this kind of trauma. You just right. can't do it because you right. have to understand what they're going through. So because of all that that was going on in my family, I, I went to college, I got my degree in psychology and I continued on. And my dream was to be an alcohol counselor, okay? And the very first job that I got, which was a horrible mistake, but was working through our county with court-appointed alcoholic and drug abusers. So anybody that had gotten arrested for selling or whatever. Okay, so I go into the first meeting and I don't speak their language. I know everything. I've lived it. I've watched it. I haven't experienced exactly what they have, but I've watched it for years and years and years, but I don't speak their language. And they were, first of all, they were pissed off because they weren't there because they wanted to be. They were there because they were forced to be. Yes. Okay. Number two, they asked me, so are you an addict? And I'm not. So they're like, what the fuck are you doing here? You don't you have no idea. Well, I do to a certain extent. I lived with them. I watched it all my life. Um, but that wasn't good enough for them. And I just could not speak their language. I wasn't saying fucking this and fucking that. And, you know, I wanted to help them. I was going to save the world. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But I immediately, you know, after two weeks, went to, went to my boss and said, you know what, I am not the right person for this. They need, they need somebody else that's going to talk their language. And this guy came in to help out, you know, and the first thing he did was say, first of all, all of you sit the fuck down. Oh, God, You're going to listen to me. Yeah. And you, you, you in there were doing a urine test. And like, 
I wanted everybody to just be okay. You know, talk to me if you feel like drinking. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Here's another thing that people don't understand about drinking. What's when, when, when somebody goes over and takes a drink, that's not the relapse. The relapse happens a day, three days before when the relapse happens. When the thought pattern, then we have the behavior. The thought is there? Yeah, the thought turns over, the behavior changes. We get irritable, we get nasty, we get uncomfortable in our own skin, and then we pick up the alcohol. So the relapse is not the alcohol. If you're trying to teach people that, you know, when you pick, before you pick up a drink, call me. It's like, oh, it was over two days ago when that, you know, that comment he made about his boss being an idiot. That, that, that was his relapse. There's no point in calling you. He's, he's going to relapse. He's going to drink alcohol. That's the end result. The way you need to catch him is his thought act and his behavior. And that's what we have to teach through somatic experiences. What's your behavior? Your behavior will tell you hours or days before you are going to pick up alcohol. Because remember, the alcoholism centers in the subconscious brain. This is why it's so hard, and that's what people understand. If you have a normal illness, you know, you can see yourself getting sick, you might do something to, to uh, bar it, and you might get well, or you might suffer, but you know when it's coming up. With alcoholism, you don't. It's in the subconscious brain thinking problem, but then the behavior and the mood changes before we pick up that drink. Now, if you don't know that, then you're teaching relapse, relapse prevention, or whatever you call it, then it's not going to work. And this is... Again, with the book, that is people that are teaching this stuff don't have the experience or knowledge to get people to a place where they're never going to drink again. And people say, well, you can't say that. Actually, when you solidify neural pathways for good and replace them by bad, you actually can do that permanently once you solidify them. And again, it's around 90 days. You can change that repetition and destruction, and you can change the way the brain, you have to remap the brain the way it works. It's a hundred percent guarantee, a hundred percent guarantee that you'll never drink again, as long as you keep following the program, our program, or any program. You know, it's that rigid thought pattern every day, because alcohol—it's got nothing to do with alcohol. So, so if the um, alcoholic is not seeing that sign of relapsing several days before. Is there, can a family member or a spouse or somebody see that? Great question, Chris, great question. Yeah, they can, you know, they see that I'm not coming for dinner tonight. I'm not coming down. You've been in your room for three days. You come down, you've not shaved, you've not done anything. You're still in the post two days ago. Boom, that's the time of every conversation with them, all the time. And a lot of parents say to you, well, I don't want to go in the room and search. I don't want to stop it. I would rather you search than go to his funeral. Because if, it, if there's alcoholism in the family, this is what we're talking about. This is a life or death errand that you're on. This is not what I don't want to upset him. Uh, you'll be upset when he goes to the funeral. If he doesn't help, he will die. If he's a real alcoholic like me. And this is one of my deals. Is first of all, you don't have to go down to the bottom I went to. That's why I do this. And secondly, education, education, education. And the reason why we haven't got a grip of addiction in this country is there's no money in recovery. All the money is in the pharmaceutical companies. All the money is in the treatment centers. All the money is in going to see doctor after doctor after doctor. There's no money in getting people well. You know, when I first said that about 10 years ago, I thought the pharmaceutical companies were going to have me, you know, bumped off or something. But it's true, guys. Just think about it. Think about my own medication when you go to the doctor. If you go to the doctor for, for being depressed, okay, he'll give you an SSR. They go, there you go, take this, you'll feel better. So what happens is I take the medication and I feel better. 
stop it. That's not looked at the problem. He's giving you an extra SSR, serotonin. So what's the problem? The problem is the trauma. So instead of giving pills out, why don't they go back to, this is what we do. Why don't we go back to your trauma and clear that up so your serotonin will be increased as we go along. That social belonging will be better. So when you say clear that up, so are we talking about you, you accept it, you deal with it, and then you let it go? Uncover, find out what it is that's been keep, keeping you holding back the molestation, the, the bullying, the, the abandonment from, from father. And look at abandonment as a whole. Again, look into the trauma. Abandonment, here's one, one, uh, one quick uh, session I had with somebody. He had abandonment from his father, but they lived in a $4 million house. And he got a Ferrari on his birthday, his 18th birthday, and everything was amazing. And oh, by the way, he didn't see his dad for six days because he was away working. So that's where the abandonment was. So when he goes in relationships with anybody, that abandonment will play a part. And his relationships will never work out because his safe place is in his bedroom away from other people. And the social skills from parents passed down to uh, the enmeshment passed down to the children is not happening anymore. Plus, these days, the kids are so busy on, uh, in, you know, phones and, and iPads that social skills are no longer being taught. I've been, I've been lucky because I've been a very strict parent. I was brought up by strict parents, and I, I don't allow the sitting on the phone and, and on the computer and all that. I never have done that. However, I have had to take them away and so on and so forth. Um, my biggest thing is, is keeping an open communication constantly. I don't, I, I think as a parent that I have the right, if I want to look in their phone and see what's going on, I'm going to do it. Oh, fantastic. thank God for that. Excellent. That's a great, that's a great line you just said. Exactly. You've got the right to do that. Parents don't have the privacy. Stop it. Will you? With all these crazy things happening with guys getting 12-year-old girls out on dates to stop it. You have to protect the child from what he doesn't already, doesn't know, sorry, and you already know. Exactly. And I, you know, so I learned at a very long, young age that I can't be their friend. I have to be their parent. And they're probably not going to like me for a lot of years, you know. <laughs> but they're going to grow up. I can't up. be their friend. I want to be their parent. Oh, beautiful line. So true. So, you know, and I remember my mom saying, you know, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I believe it now. I've lived it. I've lived it. It is horrible when your child is so mad at you that they don't want to speak to you because you took their phone away because, you know, you found something they were doing in there that they shouldn't be doing, whatever. But I don't care. I'm just like, you know what? You'll get over it. Yeah. And in a couple of years' time, you'll thank me for that, you know? And you know what? They're both, they're both well, one's in college, the other one's out of college and married, but both of them <laughs> have already done that. They've already said, we're around these, you know, other students, other people, and their parents weren't like you. And we just really appreciate what you did. Doesn't I mean, mean, it mean, a hit parent. Doesn't mean guys, it stop being a hit parent. It doesn't work. But I want to do, I want to do this for the kids. I want to do this, you know, all the, stop it. You're 40, 50 years old, 30 years old, stop it, act like you're children. Nothing wrong with getting involved in sports and like that. There's a fine line 
act as a parent. You're not the friend. A friend will get them killed. A friend will take them out to some clipping 50-year-old guy who wants to rape them somewhere, you know, because of right. the way the internet works these days. Be a parent. Stop trying to be a friend. That's right. Thank you so much for, for um, reiterating that for me and for everybody else out there. Um, okay, I, I know that you're short on time. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. Okay, let's keep going. Awesome. <laughs> I, I just, I love hearing what you have to say. Um, these are so many things that I've thought of and wanted to share with people, but I'm, I'm not the expert. I, I love what you're studying. I, I love the way that you're approaching things. And so can you go into that? Can you go into what happens? What happens the day we go into recovery uh, in, in your program? Well, first of all, it's a shock by anybody, but you need to want to do it. And then what happens in the first day is so just an introduction. And then the second day, you'll be given a psychometric test, a psychology testing, and we'll get an idea of who you are. And then we start building a picture. Um, again, nine out of 10 times, alcohol or drugs, that's sold on the first session with me because that's not your problem. And they explain what your problem is and it becomes apparent that alcohol is not the deal here. So, and then we slowly start building a picture. So there's so many things I want to tell you tonight. Quantum physics tells us that we can be anywhere doing anything at any time of the day. All we've got to do is visualize it and we walk over and we do that. So everybody's capable of doing amazing things. But what happens is, I don't know about you, Christy, when I was a, a kid kicking a football around the streets of Manchester outside mom and dad's house, and you shout across to your friend, hey, Jimmy, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be an astronaut. What about you, Jane? I want to be a teacher. What happens to them dreams? I'll tell you. Your family and friends kicked it out of you. That's what happens. You see, everyone's born with a million-dollar mind, but what we tend to do is get beaten down and hang around 10 seg mines. You can do anything you want. If you want to be a CEO of that business that you pass every day going to work in that store, you can. The only difference between you and him in 2022 is he believed he could do it. You don't right now. So we turn, we turn people into champions. We turn people into believers. One of the things I say to you on the first couple of appointments is, because it's a daily appointment, an hour a day for 90 days, is I say to them, if me and you could swap places for three minutes, all your problems would be over. Because we never see ourselves for who we are. And nobody tells each other anything. I was at the Dallas offices a couple of years ago, and I came out and I heard two of my nurses talking, and one younger one who just started said to one that's been with us for about 10 years, did you see what Dr. Rob just did? That guy came in, he was suicidal. He spent an hour with Dr. Rob. He come out, he's whistling, he's waving to us. He's absolutely amazing. And the older nurse knew where she was going. She says, I know, right? Have you told him that? And this was her reaction. Oh, oof, no. I mean, he already knows, but no, no, I'm not telling him. Of course. Nobody tells him to. You know, this is why we compliment three people every day. When you see something, tell them. Because yep. this is how we build into a different life. Now, if I tell you a lie, you might believe it. If I tell you a lie, often enough, you're going to start to believe it. Guess what? If I tell you a lie, real often enough, I'm going to start to believe it. And that's what we do with the patients. We get them to see who they really are. Because everybody that comes to us on the telehealth side have lost their identity. They've either been married, there's been a divorce, and her identity has become his, his friends, his places, 
his eating, you know, all, so they've got no identity. The people is out struggling alcohol and the wife's struggling out, they have no identity anymore. It's building that identity, you know, looking at the remapping of the brain, looking at the central nervous system's reaction and getting them to believe. And we will go to any length to make sure that happens. Let me give you an example. There was a guy, 22, never dated and never had sex, terrified of the opposite sex, drove a nice Ferrari. Dad, mom and dad were amazing. So he couldn't get over this, not speaking to girls. So what I did one night, I had a friend in Dallas who had an Irish club, and we asked if we could plant seven or eight of our girls in there. And he said, you certainly can. So we planted seven or eight of these beautiful girls talking, you know, two here, three over there, four, you know, and I, I walked in with this guy and, and we got a drink. So he turned around and said, if you could have any girl, because I knew which one was going to pick, because we bought exactly where the girls were. I said, anybody in the world, let me show you, you could pick anybody and you get talking to them. Not necessarily dating, but you're talking to them. And he said, that's impossible. And I said, pick somebody out. He went straight for the blue-eyed blonde girl who was about 24, 25. My, one of my staff that I we walked over that he was terrified. And I'd said to this girl, I said to all of them, he drives Mustang cars and he likes Brian Ferry. Hit on them two points. So he was so shaken when he sat down. I'm like, hey girl, I pretend I didn't know him. Hey girls, uh, I'm Rob. You know, this is, let's say, Tommy. And they said, oh, I'm Julie, I'm Dan. Oh, good to, good to meet you. I said, can I pay for the, the, the dinners? And oh my God, that's awesome. Thank you so much. And then one girl said, I can't really, I've got to go out and put like another $5 in the parking meter because I don't want my Mustang getting up. Mustang, you got a Mustang? That was all it took. After about 15 minutes, me and the other girl come away and he spoke to her for three hours. We separated, worked back home two days later, she was dating. So where did that come from, though? Where did what come from? The idea? Well, his the the fact that he was terrified of women. It was just because well, he asked the other. It was on the scale. The uh, on the clock Asperger's. Okay, I got it. So it was part of that, and part of obviously never been outside the house because of the Asperger's. So never really got into dialogue. And I don't know about you, but after a certain age of, you know, just being out there, when I got to about 14, 15, it was like the terror came in about girls not being able to speak to them. You know, it's just a process we go through. And of course, we have to go back and repair that damage that it had been through. But we were sat down with just so much confidence from that meeting that we had. But it was stage. And he never knew it was stage, even to this day. He never, he doesn't have to know it was stage. He's married now, he has two kids. You know, it's amazing what people can do once they realize who they are. Um, so, so I have a situation then I would like to ask you about, um, or not a situation, but just the way that I believe. So you, you say, well, first of all, do you agree that not every person has the same type of trauma, even though, I mean, they might have the same thing. Let's say, let's say divorced parents. we got, we, you know, we had divorced parents. Does that mean all of us are going to be traumatized by that? I don't think so. There is, there is a slight trauma attached to that, but here's the research that we've done. The, the, the child, whether he be five or 20, right. anybody in the 21, the child has a happier lifetime with two separated parents living in two houses happy than parents being together. So I, I kind of agree with you as long as it's not hostile. You're telling your dad this and your dad your fault and, and the fighting in front of the child. 
I'd say, yeah, that, that's that's amicable. It's amazing. Two parents can live together. I've seen it done thousands of times. Right. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Right. And then, so then the other the other situation was, um, oh my gosh, and I had it sitting there ready to the trauma, the trauma, the trauma. Oh, parents. Both my parents worked. Both my parents worked. I had to come home and get my, you know, from school by myself and get my own snack until my parents came home. I felt fear of abandonment. Yeah, 100%. Come on. Definitely abandonment. Definitely. You have to have your needs met every day as a child and an adult. An adult. So let's go through the first. Please do, because I... You know, that was part of my life. Um, it's I learned, had it's learned to behave. It's learned, beha- it's learned behavior. Of you're on your own for so many times. It's learned behavior that that becomes comfortable. Okay. That becomes part of your everyday life. So, hey, it's okay. It's learned behavior. People that have been raped as a child, it becomes learned behavior. People that are spoken down to, it becomes second nature. They love speaking, people to speak down to. People that molest people, get, people that get molested, molest people. Hurt people hurt. It's carried on. So although we don't say, I didn't have any trauma from that, I just knew what it was. It's okay. It was only six. That has affected you in your adult life. I don't care what you say. So I understand all of those. It's just the like, come on, how many most most families have to have both mom and dad working together? Okay. <laughs> yeah. It's so it, it it's different. And to me, like at a young age, my children didn't have to go home. You know, I mean, they were they were at a daycare and, and mom or dad picked them up. Okay, so that was probably security there. Um, but as they were old enough, 12 or 13 years old, they couldn't even be in a daycare anymore. So yes, they had to be home for an hour. We, we had snacks ready for them and then we were home. We always made sure that we were, give, you know, Gave them time at dinner to discuss the day. And then always, at least, you know, at night, that's different. You've got homework, you've got baths, you know, all that kind of stuff. So you don't really have that much time for bonding during the week. But we always made sure that we did things with our children and family on the weekends. I, I'm that's sorry. different. That's different. When you come oh, I'm sorry. I didn't feel... I didn't feel abandonment because my parents both worked and I had to come home and be home for an hour and a half and get my own snack until they were there. It's not the abandonment that you feel. It's the reactions as you go on with life. Okay. That's what it is. So if your husband texts off every night for an hour, that will drive you crazy. That will hurt. You want to know exactly what's going on. It's kind of things like that. So if, if, you're, if, you're, if you're left alone from four o'clock until mom gets home at eight, five minutes. If you're left to five and six, the snack's ready for you. No, I, that's not that's not what I meant by, by being left okay. alone. Okay. You know, but it does affect people uh, the way you don't think it affects. Okay. And I know it sounds crazy, but whenever like you're you're out with somebody or you're with somebody or you're looking after your children, the first thing you're going to do when anything happens is give them snacks. It's like what? How does that go again? Oh, it's going to be a lot of it. And this is if you understand the trauma that. That the whole of the world doesn't know yet is it's deeply embedded. Anything less than nurturing as a child is child abuse. Now, is that going to ruin your life? No. 
if you're an alcoholic with alcoholic tendencies, was that going to ruin your life? Yes. That's the difference. Okay. Okay. I just oh. want to <laughs> clarify that because I see a lot of, you know, I absolutely agree with the, the trauma thing. I deal with a lot of people with childhood traumas. It's just sometimes I'm like listening to this over and over again. And it's like, okay, some of this is like, it's life. It's, it's not that traumatic. It depends on how you look. So it could be your personality too, don't you think? It's mom and dad's personality that's going to mesh down to you. Okay. But if you're there between four and eight, uh, then you're going to leave somebody between four and eight. If your mom's arguing, your dad's arguing with violence in the house, you're going to go on to argue with your wife and violence in the house. Why do women always attract that guy, Dr. Rob, that always ends up being an alcoholic and always ends up beating me? Tell me about your parents. Oh, it's like it comes out in so many different ways. Some good, some bad, but there is trauma. All trauma doesn't have to be bad as well. All trauma can be cleared up. A trauma could be a reminder of what went, what went on back then, which will make you, you know, and your, your grandkids or, the, or with other people, you don't leave them alone. Girls got beaten in your sight when they're young. I mean, it just affects in so many ways because the brain is so complicated. But well, I so many Go on. So thanks for saying that because I had I had somebody say to me, so you know, in following these steps, and I don't know if in your recovery thing you do the 12 steps. Uh, yes, we, we do with some people want to do definitely. Okay, so one of them one of them is to forgive, <laughs> ask for forgiveness and forgive. Is that right? I mean I don't know them in order. You make amends, you make amends to uh, to the people you've harmed. Okay. Well, so one one of these people were telling me they've forgiven, but they haven't forgotten. And some minister said, "Well, if you haven't forgotten, then you haven't for truly forgiven." And I was like, when that person told me that, I said, "You know, I don't totally agree with that because I think there's some things we need to remember, especially if it's an act that we did or that we accepted that." Okay, we'll forgive that person, but we need to remember it so we don't make that same thing again. If, if we don't remember, then the Holocaust will take place again. If we don't remember, then Hiroshima will take place again. So I, I totally agree. So they took some uh, Jewish people back to Auschwitz and they talked to them outside the wall and sat there. And the question was asked, do you forgive them? Mm-hmm. Nine people said yes, and the lady said, no, I don't. And this is what was said by a psychologist to her. She said, in that case, they still have you. It was such a powerful lie. If you don't forgive, they still have you in that torment. So you have to forgive. Do you have to forget? No. That, that's I'm how I forgive my first bully, but if you want to tomorrow, recognize him. And maybe a little bit wary of him, but uh, no, I agree with you 100. Yeah, you have to forgive. It's part of my deal because it's my. If if I want to make amends, so like I want to make amends to you, Christy, my amends is not for you. It's for me. I want to be at peace. So right. I say no. You know, regret anything in the past, blah blah blah, and I walk away. Whether you go, Rob, get out of here. It's fine. I crossed you off that list, but I've made my part. It's for me. Once you do that, you can be at perfect ease and peace with your life and that's one of the keys to life is never forget but you must forgive thank you because to me you need to remember those things so that they're not repeated or you don't attract that 
type of person anymore. It depends on the situation, but as long as you're forgiving in here. Okay, go ahead. One more thing I want to say is that um, if anyone's feeling depressed, if anyone's listening to this or feel less than, first of all, I want to apologize to you because somebody's put that there. So here are the four brain chemicals that you need to release every day to take you to a happy place. I'm 10 on the scale of one to 10 happiness. I am 10, I will always be a 10, I will been a 10 since I got on the street. So let's look at endorphins. Exercise, walk, just move for 20 minutes a day. Just move whatever you need to do. It releases en endorphins. So that's one of the good feel chemicals that we have. Thank you, number the one. Number one, the reward system. Pleasure is dopamine. When I say thank you to somebody or I compliment somebody, dopamine's released into my brain. There's number two chemical every single day. Can you repeat that? When you say thank you to somebody or you are uh, any kind of reward system to somebody, then dopamine is released into your brain. Every time I thank somebody, dopamine's there. Every time I say, hey, great, great sneakers, dopamine's released in my brain. So there's two of the four. Serotonin is social belonging. Most people that isolate are miserable. In actual fact, we did some tests on death row over in Texas. Mm -hmm. And probably 90% of people that ended up going to the chair of the needle was insane. Isolation is bad. Isolate. We need that serotonin from the social belonging and sunlight. There's the three. What we're, what we're missing. We're mixing oxytocin is what we're missing. And that's the human bonding. They call it the cuddle. The cuddle uh, hormone. The cuddle good feel. So once we get that social belonging, that, that bonding, sorry, that bonding of human beings, being with people, hugging, hey, how are we doing, hugging? We've got four chemicals going every day. Listen up, guys. When we have the four chemicals every day, it is impossible for you to feel depressed. It is impossible for you not to have a great day, period. I love that. What do you think about crying? You need to release that stuff, guys. You know, you, you need to show your emotions. It's so cool. And listen, guys, oh, gotta be men. Oh, I'm so tired of that. Listen to, yeah, listen to this. There's nothing more sexy to the women telling you than a man that shows his feelings. So you be strong as hell at that though. You protect your girl. You do anything you gotta do, you know, to protect her when it comes to intimacy, because that's very important. Don't don't be shy to forget. One of my questions is when's the last time you cried in front of somebody? And the men go, well, five years ago, no, right. no, stop it, stop it, you know? One of the things that I wanted to bring out in that um, is something I learned <laughs> years ago, and I totally agree with it, is, and I don't know that people even realize this, um, when you cry, we actually have endorphins in those tear ducts that come <clears throat> up and actually help you feel happy. Yes. And yes. so it is important, you know, it's a, it's a stress reliever. Yes, if you don't let that stress go. It so, will build up and build up. It's not like a computer screen. Let's say you've got a zip file on your computer screen. It's a nice little suitcase. You stick everything else in there that's too big to deal with right now. Keep sticking it in, sticking it in. Then one day when you're bored and got nothing to do, you'll click on that zip file. Everything will come out of your points. It's the same thing with us, with the stress, the feelings. The, you know, we keep pushing them down and pushing them down like we're told to. Nothing leaves the house. Everything's swept under the carpet. You know, push it down, push it down. And then what happens is you have a nervous breakdown because your brain can't handle it. Suddenly just erupts and that's it, finally pressed on and you are done. 
Yeah. What I do if I get extremely stressed, because um, I'm not <laughs> as easy of a crier as I used to be. I've been through a lot of, lot of deaths and a lot of, you know, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I built, you know, this coldness, but I'm not cold. I just have had so much that I don't cry as easily. So now when I feel extremely stressed, I will actually like find a movie or find a book or something that is sad that will make me cry just to let it loose. And people go, why would you want to depress? No, I'm not getting depressed. I mean, I might get sad for a minute to bring that out, but when I'm done crying, I feel so much better. Yep, 100%. Okay, so I, I just want to add that to people to make sure that they know that it's okay to cry. It's a good thing to cry. Sometimes. Yes. Okay. Well, that's the witching hour, unfortunately. <laughs> wow, I've just, this has been so amazing, Christy. Thank you so much. I so much appreciate it. When we're doing the second half. <laughs> yeah. So you, you, I know you're really busy. So am I, but I'm going to get back, back with um, yeah. your, and we'll plan a second one. Okay. Awesome. Thank you so okay. much. Pleasure you. to be with you. You too. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. So I don't know about you guys, but that had to be one of my favorites episodes of Life Struggles. Dr. Rob Kelly was so interesting and just really, really gave us some good information and some very good explanations on things that I'm sure a lot of you didn't know because, you know, I've lived the life that he's talking about from the time I was a little girl, not being an addict, but being around addicts in my immediate family. And I've been to meetings and counseling and and all the things, and I learned more from him than any other program or counselor. So if you enjoyed it, whether you're listening to it on Spotify or Apple or Google or Stitcher, whatever platform you're listening to, make sure that you give us a rating. And if you have any questions or comments, you're welcome to go to my email and send me a quick email about it. That struggles are hard at gmail.com or if you know somebody or if you yourself would like to be on the podcast and you have a life struggle to share that you have conquered and would like somebody else to not feel alone, I'd love to have you on my show. So you can also go to strugglesarehard at gmail.com and give me a little bit of bio on what you'd like to talk about. And just a little bit of information. I'm going to have Dr. Rob Kelly back in July. So can't wait. Thank you all for listening. Make sure you come back and listen.